0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. On the computer. Uh, good afternoon. This is Michael Vandervoort. It's August 11th. We're creeping through the, the, the dog days of August. Uh, it's hot here in Florida. I imagine it's hot everywhere, but we're uh, we're headed towards the fall and maybe some temperature relief. But in the meantime, things stay hot in the world of labor relations. And so I am here with my podcast co-host, John Hyman. John, we're doing another uh, our second episode of Labor Relatedly. How are you doing today?
0: I am doing well. How are you?
1: I'm good. As we as we chatted about you know online before, I was in uh, I was out of the out of the state of Florida last week, elsewhere on some business business and a bit of vacation. So that was cool. Now I'm back here and it's busy as hell and uh, so on and so on. But there's a lot going on in the world of labor relations, and I thought we. You know, in order to keep up, you know, we said once a month, but it's been a two, three weeks, and there are at least three or four things for us to talk about today. So I thought maybe we should get together, and you, you were available. So you wanna, uh, you wanna get started? And uh, as our co-host, and also our special labor law correspondent, um, so that we give all due credit here. Um, we, I think the first thing we were going to talk about is actually about a week old and it's, 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 it's a little esoteric because it involves sports and sports labor relations are always a little bit different because of celebrities and it's millionaires on billionaires and that kind of stuff. But we got, we got Deshaun Watson and a really interesting, um, decision by an arbitrator which is a uh,
0: story a story near and dear to my heart as i sit here and uh no doubt yeah my my hometown quarterback love it or not
1: do you do you find yourself conflicted by that like in in terms of like he he's a brilliant talent i guess although he sat out last year and the browns have a kind of a, a team on the rise with a lot of talent so this guy could be a piece kind of like what we saw with brady when he came to the 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 Buccaneers down here in Tampa a couple years ago. But Brady came with baggage, but not like Deshaun Watson.
0: No, this is baggage of a whole other kind. Um, conflicted, yeah. I think a lot of us here uh, in Cleveland feel conflicted. I think what you will find is that if uh, Deshaun Watson d- ends up playing the season and the Browns uh, win 10, 11, 12 games, make it one of the playoffs, all, all those, the, the conflicts for a lot of people are going to fall by the wayside. I think <laughs> people's you know it's it's easy to take a stand and then once the team starts winning this team that you love your whole life and it's been a perennial disappointment all of a sudden uh, you'll, be, you'll be right back on the bandwagon. but I'm I'm very conflicted I wish that the Browns had put um, uh, morals over uh, over winning which is uh, I understand a rarity in those boards because winning is everything and winning leads to dollars, and dollars is, is, is what drives all this, so I, I get it. I just wish that it was one of the other, whatever, 31 teams, or 30 teams that had taken a, a flyer on Deshaun Watson. Because I think it sends a signal that, a strong signal that um, we value winning over everything, including the safety of the uh, however many of the women you want to believe, and in uh, the disciplinary office would heard Sean Watts' case for the NFL, Sue Robinson was a retired federal judge. There were only four of the, whatever, 20 24, I think, bit, that have accused him of sexual misconduct, sexual assault. She heard only four of those cases were before her, but she believed uh, just the fact that she said in her opinion that she believed in all the women So type this arbitrator dealing with that's troubling that that sorry i'm having
1: some i'm having a little bit of uh can you hear me now
0: yeah i can hear you
1: okay sorry i was having a little bit of connectivity here for a second on my headset i think sorry about that um yeah so the so as you said 24 maybe 27 i don't know the exact details um not that it's insignificant right but it was it was a double digits you know uh, a lot of women who filed complaints about it about harassment and you know, mistreatment and and there was a, a a settlement i guess settlements reached which the details really aren't you know available for but i'm presuming they included non-disclosure agreements from most yeah. of the people that probably settled yes. probably yeah and so, it was all yeah. But
0: one deshaun watson settled cases but
1: all yeah so there were three women i think who refused to settle and one who maybe settled but didn't have an nda or something and so the arbitrator uh this sue ellen robinson really had a, a limited array of evidence that she could consider in this hearing um, and and I, I, th- I thought maybe what were the right place to start is you know a lot of, a lot of HR professionals hear about arbitrations but they don't really understand how they work and this isn't a classic labor, Union type arbitration that an employer would have because it's a little bit of a special referee or whatever. But can you just kind of maybe lay out for us from a legal perspective how what arbitration is and how it works real quick, and then we'll talk about like her decision.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is it is I mean it is essentially a trial for all intents and purposes, um, with a couple of key differences. Difference number one is there's no judge or jury, the finder of facts. And the ultimate decider um, is the arbitrator. That's number one. Number two, the arbitrator is supposed to be bound by uh, the provisions of the collective bargaining agreement being um, being interpreted or applied, and importantly, and, it, and it's, um, I think it comes into play in the Deshaun Watson case, is supposed to be guided by past practice, um, and, um, and there's really, uh, unlike a, a trial in a, in a state or federal court, or if you don't like the result, you, have, you can appeal to an appellate court, the, your right to appeal here in, in a labor arbitration is very, very, very limited. Um, and the odds of you actually succeeding on an appeal are even more limited. So that, for all intents and purposes, the arbitrator's decision is um, is final. Uh, the NFL the, the NFL case with the Sean Watson's a little different in that um, either side here did have a right under the collective bargaining agreement to to appeal the decision. The NFL player association on Watson's behalf did not. The NFL has saying that the six games that he was awarded was too light um, of a suspension. They thought an indefinite suspension of at least a year was, was warranted under, under the circumstances. And so a, uh, uh, Roger Goodell, the NFL commissioner, has deferred to a, a, a supposedly neutral third party who's gonna, who will issue a decision, and that decision will essentially be final with limited appeal rights uh, from that ultimate decision.
1: Yeah. And from a labor law perspective, again, with it, you know, the fact that it's sports. So in, in recent years, the last several years, most of these kind of decisions related to player misconduct, most of those suspensions and or punishments were handed down by commissioner Goodell, just sort of arbitrarily. He just kind of did whatever he felt like doing. And he had a wildly inconsistent record of, of, You know, assessing, you know, 17 games, a full season for somebody placing a bet on his own team to win, which, You know, gambling is always viewed, you know, with great uh, animosity by sports leagues, but that's not the most heinous crime in the world. And especially when you compare it to, you know, what might be 24, 25, 30 cases of sexual assault and or worse. Right. And that guy. So that guy, uh, Calvin Ridley, gets 17 games and, you know, Deshaun Watson with a different judge. Or different uh arbitrator gets six i mean and, and but there's tons of stuff like that going back so there's no that's one of the reasons that the, i think that the league and the players association kind of agreed to try this new arbitrator our option was to try to bring a little bit more consistency to the process because and, they've and, sucked at it basically yeah
0: and and that's what they're that's what they're trying to do i think the the prop my problem and this is in no way it designed or meant to condone what Deshaun Watson did or is accused of doing, which is horrific and inexcusable. And as I said before, I'm not happy with the fact that he's quarterbacking my team um, with a quarter of a billion dollar contract uh, right. backing him. Um, but the, the collective bargaining agreement here to me is very problematic for the NFL. Um, the agreement, and I have it open in front of me, so I'm going to quote what I think is the key passage The agreement says, quote, ownership and club or league management have traditionally been held to a higher standard and will be subject to more significant discipline when violations of the personal conduct policy occur, close quote. And the NFL has a horrific track record of holding uh, ownership, uh, white, it's white ownership to account uh, for ownership's violation of the league's personal conduct policy. And there are numerous examples. You have uh, Bob Craft of the New England Patriots, who was uh, actually indicted for uh, uh, prost- uh, – Chloe was caught in a prostitution sting at a Florida massage parlor and was actually under indictment. Mm-hmm. Uh, the charges were the charges ultimately dropped because of some constitutional issues with search and seizure. But he was actually indicted. Deshaun Watson, not indicted. Two different grand juries refused to indict him on anything, anything right. criminal. Um, Dan Snyder, the owner of the Washington, what do they called now, the com- Commanders? Com- commanders, yeah, the yes. Commanders, the Washington Commanders, uh, accused of sexually assaulting um, uh, female employees and other instances of sexual harassment. Jerry Jones, the owner of the Cowboys, um, accused of sexual, you know, sexual uh, assault, sexual misconduct uh, of, of a female employee. So, if your if your agreement says you're going to hold ownership mm-hmm. uh, to the same or more significant higher standard for their violations of the personal conduct policy and they got off with nothing, uh, it seems to me when you're letting white ownership off with nothing uh, to give the black player anything to me smacks of discrimination, protecting the, protecting the old boys club, whatever you wanna call it. Uh, but to me, particularly if uh, we, I think I read this morning that we may get a decision on the NFL's appeal of the six games as early as next week. If that ends up being indefinite suspension or a season-long suspension or whatever, I think we will see litigation in federal court. I think it's going to put people like Bob Kraft and Dan Snyder front and center, and it's not a good look for the NFL at all.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, is there... Is there any um, well there's no chance it would be less than six games, I guess. I was you know I was, I was gonna ask if there's any kind of appeal that Watson would have, but I think he I think it's either take the six games or 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 maybe appeal the next level. I don't know how that I, don't well, I think know he maybe... chose
0: he chose not to appeal it. I think yeah. Yeah, the, he he and the NFLPA chose not to appeal the six games, so I think
1: they've they've
0: they've they, accepted I they've, it. I, I think they've accepted that and waived any waived any argument that that's
1: too harsh. I guess where I was going is if the if they if somehow the league wins. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the process, and I'm not sure that you do either. I wonder if there's an appeal there, or would you have to go into court, maybe, saying that it, you know, it, it gets really esoteric. Yeah, I, I, not-
0: I have read that the decision of the commissioner's office, which he has offloaded to this third party, uh, the decision of the commissioner's office is final. Okay. No appeal rights. But the NFLPA has already said that if the suspension is made more severe, they will file a lawsuit.
1: Yeah, that, that's kind of what I figured. The, to the decision. So, so once they get out of this arbitrator, it goes to it, it, it could go to court. Um Correct. that's typically not the case in a in a standard, more collective bargaining based arbitration process. Once the arbitrator issues those decisions, those are typical. I mean, it, rarely you can take them into court, but it it's so it's so incidental that it's almost never happens, right?
0: Yeah, and it just I I I'm not sure what the NFL is trying to, I I know what they're trying to accomplish here. They think that he should be punished more severely. I get that. But when you have Deshaun Watson's team saying, um, you know, raising the names of people like Bob Kraft and Dan Snyder, and when you have the arbitrator, uh, 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 Sue Robinson herself making reference to it in a, albeit in a footnote, but a reference to it in her, in her written decision, why the NFL wants to take the chance of all of this dirty laundry about their history of giving their, their owners a pass um, for their own acts or allegations of sexual misconduct. To me, is I just don't understand why they want to risk having all that dirty laundry aired in a in in a in a courtroom in a in a federal in a federal lawsuit. It makes no sense to me at all.
1: Yeah, I, in fact, I heard a an excellent point by some I don't remember the name of the of that sports analyst, but like on an ESPN or something, who said that effectively with this appeal they've they've made this whole upcoming season going to be this the discussion is going to be Deshaun Watson and it even regardless of how it turns out with the appeal you know they've they've kind of t- tainted the whole season from a set of letting it sort of just settle down and you know to deal with it as this in the system that they they set up themselves so anyway yeah um, and you know and,
0: and like i said if you know if deshaun watson takes the browns of the super bowl this year or next year or whatever at yeah least in, in the city of cleveland it'll be all it'll be all sins yeah. forgiven for deshaun there'll be a statue of him in the middle of public square so yeah it, it, it will be everything forgiven unfortunately
1: well let's hope that he at least maybe learned to be a better person out of all this but uh, that isn't always the case either um So there is another legal, uh, another big legal thing that came out earlier this week, I think, uh, out of New York State, which involves the restaurant chain Chipotle, which we talked a little bit on our last show related to union organizing in Augusta, Maine. But this isn't about union organizing. This is about a big big labor law judgment, um, $20 million settlement for several thousand employees in New York State over um, pay and scheduling change laws that exist in the state of New York. So this isn't something that impacts every practitioner across the US, but it's a growing trend, these kinds of legislation where the, the state passes a law that guarantees people, you know, set schedules and, and so on, it makes it really difficult for uh, some businesses to, to manage their schedules. But um, in this case, at least it comes with a huge cost. So I don't know if you had a chance to take a look at that case or not.
0: I did. um it's a, I mean, the number obviously jumps off the page anytime you see that many zeros in a in a settlement, and that's not even the that's the settlement. I think yeah. the the alleged violations totaled something like one hundred and fifty million dollars. you know, and that was and I think that was just the that was just the back pay. and then there was you know, penalties and liquidated damages and everything on top of that. And so, to settle a case for $20 million, obviously, um, it is it causes, you know, it's it's jaw dropping that number. Um, yeah, I mean, this comes out of what are called um, uh, fair scheduling laws, uh, where you're supposed to, you know, give employees, you know, notice of their scheduling, you're supposed to uh, make shifts available to current employees before you go hiring new employees, which uh, does things like potentially bring overtime into play for workers. Where instead of, and it prevents you from getting out of obligations like uh, your affordable care, you know, health insurance obligations to employees. So you're instead of having two employees at 20 hours, you, if you have enough work for one employee at 40, you're supposed to schedule that one employee, hiring another to fill that, you know, to fill the gap. And so it is a it is just a, a jaw-dropping number. Um, state of New York, I think probably comes in close, you know, not, it's not quite California, but it's in terms of their employment laws and aggressiveness, it's, it's um, maybe a distant second, but still second to California. And, you know, as you said, these laws aren't on the books everywhere, but I think to tie into the overall topic of what we're trying to accomplish here with, with, our, with this show, it gives the union a really good talking point as the union is you know chipotle is um in the you know at least on the radar for uh labor unions that are that are organizing uh there's at least one that has attempted to have been organized so far i and think two there's two, actually two yeah, two total, actually, one, yeah two one, total, one, one that got, one that closed. got closed right yeah. yeah but 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 it gives the union a talking point right that you know your employer is ripping off your coworkers in, in another state to the tune of, you know, 150 million dollars, and they agreed to settle for 20 million. And it gives it gives the union a really good talking point. That frankly, um, Chipotle it, the the counter argument is not a great one for Chipotle to make since they agreed to pay 20 million dollars to settle the claim.
1: Yeah. And these, yeah, these laws require, like you said, some stability. They, they generally, I mean, I haven't read them. I've just read kind of summaries, but they generally create a situation where like if you are a fast food restaurant or retailer, you know, you, you have to assign like 14 days of schedule and give us like a, a seven day notice of change. So there's some, you know, like I don't know what you do if you if somebody calls in sick or whatever, right? I, you know, like I think there are steps in there, but laws don't always comprehend the realities of business, I guess. So it creates a pretty burdensome, um, pretty burdensome system to manage under. Uh, especially in this environment that we're operating in right now, where help is hard to find in the first place. And people tend to just kind of, you know, as we say, ghost an employer or whatever, or just call off. There's a lot of that going on. So I can understand at a certain level how Chipotle got in, got in a bit of trouble. But this seems like it's exponentially larger than the average case that you would probably see even under these r- relatively burdensome laws.
0: Yeah. You, ra- you raise a really good point though. Cause if I'm, if I'm a, if I'm a Chipotle or a fast food establishment, right. And my choices are um, scheduling employees to work 50 hours a week when they're telling me they don't want to do that. And I risk them quitting or hiring additional part-time help so I can keep my store open. And when help is impossible to find uh, you're, you're kind of finding labor where you can find it. And in this environment fueled by, which is still hiring environment, which is still fueled by the great resignation, the great reshuffling, whatever you want to call it, where hiring and retaining um, are so difficult. Um, it's it's hard to fault an employer for doing what it can to make sure it shifts or covered so that it can stay open and serve the public and make money, right? Um, but that does kind of butt up against these kind of these very difficult scheduling laws that tell employers how they have to go about scheduling employees. But in this environment, you have to question whether those laws, at least for the time being, uh, make sense because it's, it, employers are having a part of the time as is.
1: Yeah, yeah and they're what you know and the sad part is they're well intentioned. Trying to make people, you know, have like a more stable, you know, more predictable childcare. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why such laws. Oh sure. You know, the impetus for such laws makes sense. Um, it does it, and it, but it doesn't always line up with the the real life situation of business, and thus creates problems. But I don't know. I I I can't imagine having to write a 20 million dollar check though that that has a to be one of, of that has to be go- one of a the large of it's, it's, it's got to be a, the, one of the larger settlements i've seen in in a long time i don't know about you but it, I, I don't remember seeing that number very I'm,
0: I'm, I'm trying to imagine being the with the, the lawyer recommending a $20 million settlement.
1: I guess if it's if it's a $20 million settlement to escape 150, you know, you know that's... I mean, have, I,
0: have, I have clients that choke when I recommend a $20,000 20 $20, settlement. So if it's 20 million, right. I can't imagine.
1: Just, we're, we're, we don't play in the big leagues, John, I guess we're not, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not a lawyer anyway, but I guess we just don't play in the big leagues. So I'm sure I want to. Yeah, no, I know that, that man, that, yeah, that would, that would be hard to live down for sure um anyway um so let, let's switch over uh, i know we're going to kind of rolling through three or four topics today kind of quick but i want these are the next two are a little more not as uh, they're not they're not cases they're more philosophical stuff um i was i was having a conversation last week on these next two topics and these aren't things i spend a lot of time thinking about normally but i, I thought they were both fascinating and i just wanted to kind of tee them up and have a little discussion with with you about them because I think there are things that could, you know, come into play in, in practitioners' jobs. I was I was telling a couple of stories and I'll probably share one of them um, as an example of what I'm talking about. But so the first one is um in, in the world of labor relations, when there's a, a labor union contract in effect, labor union has uh, something that's called the affirmative duty of fair representation. They have to they they have to provide a minimum sort of representation. To their members in every every situation, so I don't I, don't, I and I didn't ask you about this. Do you, do you want to you want to kind of give the legal definition of what that is?
0: I mean, you just the, the union has to act in good faith on behalf of its members. It can't um, it can't turn a it can't turn a blind eye to, for example, processing grievances on behalf of a member or taking a case to arbitration. It has to act in its in its members' best interest. Um, it's almost, I mean, it's almost akin to a fiduciary obligation on the on the business side, um, but they kind of have to, have, have to act in their in their members' best interest in their execution of their obligations under the under the agreement.
1: Yeah, and 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 I have experienced in my career when I work when I managed in a unionized uh, facilities over the over the years, where from time to time that creates an odd sort of conflict between the company and the union, and also potentially between the union and ver- its various members. And I'll, I'll set up factually one of, one of those cases that I, that I remember, which, and I won't go into heavy detail on it, but it, it was and kind of harkening back to the Deshaun Watson's case. It was a situation where a male employee, a rather short-term employee, given the tenure of many of our associates at that, or employees at that plant, was working on a second shift production line. This would this would have been in the '90s when uh, biker comp- not not motorcycle but bicycling, bicycling compression shorts were part of that you know flashy wardrobes along with baggy pants, right? Baggy shorts. So this young guy would uh, would walk along the production line and rather disturbingly walk up to any female employee, he may run across and pull down his baggy shorts and, and, and display his compression shorts and what was underneath and, you know, say things like, boy, I bet you want some of that. And, and it was like, this happened night after night after night until finally somebody, you know, said enough. And they came and complained, complained to me. We did an investigation, um, found, you know, had plenty of witnesses, fired the guy, union grieved his termination my my boss my head split open when this happened but my boss reinstated this guy on a last chance agreement and he went out and did you know, and the union said, you know, basically it's last chance agreement. If he does it, you know, we'll drop it, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, you guys didn't follow progressive discipline. I'm like, how do you follow progressive discipline for sexual? Anyway, termination, he was reinstated and I fired him again a week later, which ultimately stuck the second time. But I was really pissed that we had to bring it back. And my, my personal disgust over the situation was the union argued for the guy who was a, a, a clear flagrant offender, right? And, and, and got him reinstated versus the interests of the, I, I bet the women he offended equaled in number to Sean. you know, I, there's 15 or 20 women that were involved in this complaint, ultimately, right, and the unions set aside their interests in, in favor of the one who was a flagrant violator, and they won. You know, so I like if I was a union member, I'd be furious, especially if I was a female. If if you're one of the victims, you're like, what about what about your obligation to me? Right. Exactly. So so now so now I you know, now I understand given what you just said, it's a fiduciary responsibility, you know, you know, mandated by the act, mandated by their by constitution and bylaws. So how do they how do they parse that? Right. And I know you're not on the union side. Right. But like what what is the you know, what's the right thing to do there? Because they're kind of in, in some it's, sense, it's, it's rock a hard place. Right.
0: Yeah. And a lot of it will vary by union, union to union. Because I have had conversations with union reps, union, uh, you know, union local executives in cases very similar to the one that you just discussed. Oh, this happens where, all the time. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. And it is maybe, maybe it's guided by the union's constitution and bylaws. Maybe it's just guided by the personal preference of the union president or the or whomever. But I've had some I've had some unions tell me, look, we don't feel good about it, but we have a duty, you know, we have a duty of fair representation to the fired employee, and we're gonna have to grieve his we're going to have to grieve his termination and uh, we're not going to lose any sleep if he doesn't get his job back but we've got to go through the process and do what we have to do and I've heard others tell me that their duty uh, is to all their members not just to the individual and they can't and they can't adequately um, you know meet their obligation to the victims for example if they're trying to get the alleged harasser um, his or her job back and and I and I've seen unions I've seen unions do it both ways. What I don't know, now you piqued my curiosity and I'm going to, have to take a look and maybe we'll give an update on our next show, is has a union ever been sued on a DFR, an alleged DFR violation for, by the victims right? for, mm-hmm. for um, uh, pursuing the termination of the alleged harasser? Yeah, which, I would don't, a, which would be a fascinating case.
1: That would. I, I'm not aware of any, but again, you know, it's not not something that I deal with a lot, and it's not something that I follow. But I, I, I had, like I said, I had this conversation, conversation, and the conversation was actually around the notion of maybe trying to somehow alter DFR to be more reflective of today's world because, I mean, you know, you, you,
0: you, you have two statutes here that, that in, in this, in the hypothetical that you, uh, or in the not so hypothetical that you, right. that, you condemn, story. Yes. That, that you, yeah, the, the, na- the names have been changed to protect the guilty. Um, the, the, the story that you ran through, which happens a lot, you got two statutes that are butting up against each other. You have the National Labor Relations Act, um, and you have title seven, um, and, if you're asking me whether it's as if I'm guiding my clients, or if I'm, uh, or just as a as a matter of policy or philosophy or whatever, which if, if they're going to butt up against each other, which one which one gives and which one wins, I'm saying Title Seven wins or should win ten times out of ten. Mm-hmm. I, I don't care what the National Labor Not Not I don't care what the National Labor Relations Act says if following the, the NLRA is going to cause me to create a discriminatory or hostile work environment in violation of some class protected by Title VII race or, or the ADA or the AD, you know, pick your protected class, mm-hmm. you know, race, sex, age, disability, sexual orientation, religion, national origin, whatever, I'm protecting the, I'm protecting the individual rights of the employee over whatever collective rights uh, the National Labor Relations Act is going to grant.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's really interesting. Um, anyway, so so that I I I I don't know that there's a a a, a way to resolve it. I mean, I guess um, you know employers have to do a good job. You have to document. You have to do thorough invest. I mean, all the things that we normally do anyway in these situations. You have to deal with them in a union environment because you you actually have a slightly higher bar. That you have to overcome there, um, in terms of the the review at times yeah, with that and, with an arbitrator,
0: you know, and you you hope, um, you hope that you know if the case gets to court. We saw this. This wasn't in termination case, but it was with a, a unfair labor practice charge. That, um, I forget the employee. It was a tire manufacturer out of Western Ohio, and I forget the I forget the name of the dealer. Was it dealer tire? I don't remember. Anyway. But they had a strike where um, people crossed the picket lines, and um, some of the some of the replacement workers that crossed the picket line were African American, and they were called the N word, and had like watermelons thrown at them by by the striking not white workers, and um, and the employer fired the striking workers, saying, um, you know. We have, we have an obligation to protect our employees and the replacement workers are our employees to protect them from a hostile work environment. You violated that. You're fired. And they found an for labor practice charge saying it was um, discriminatory. They you know they they were engaged in a protected activity, uh, and basically what they say on the picket line is protected. And I think they won at the board and lost at the in federal court. And the federal court ultimately said, if we're lining up competing policies between the right of strikers to have their Santa picket line versus the rights of replacement workers or other employees not to be harassed on account of their race, the rights of those not to be harassed on account of their race wins. So striking workers, you lose, you can't, you can't lob racial epithets at replacement workers with, with impunity and expect to be able to keep your job. And maybe when we're talking about the duty of fair representation, maybe what we need to see if we're talking about some common sense reforms is, is something that says that in a you know a union and, and whether this is a court decision done by court or by statute or by regulation but something that says a union does not breach its duty of fair representation when the position it takes you know causes it you know not to violate a federal or state law against yeah. workplace discrimination or something like that
1: kind of kind of ease the kind of ease the the complete and total obligation in, in in those situations where the 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 act actions are so egregious that they they're clearly defined under another statute that 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 waives the duty to represent to the extent the full extent, if you deem it, yeah, I guess would, if you deem it violating um, a law outside of the NLRA and it's not in the best interests of the full body of the membership, maybe that you know they're they're not held to that same high standard that they are today. Right. Yeah. Um, the other, the other one that I that I thought was fascinating, and it's it's very it's the the most esoteric of the of the topics we'll talk about today, is is the idea of taking a look at labor reform in general, but um, specifically 88 uh, section 882 of the National Labor Relations Act, and it's a lo- it's actually a rather long section, but just um, just. So I'm gonna play lawyer for a minute um, since I have the the section open. So for those that don't know the act by heart, which even I don't for sure, um, section 8 of the act makes it an unfair labor practice for an employer to dominate or interfere with the formation and administration of any labor organization or contribute financial or other support to it. Um, So you can't establish or control a company union or recognize a union um, in After you've been notified of a valid petition for election, you can't go find another union and cut a deal with them and you know there's a number of other things in there. It basically says, the company shall not have the ability to interfere with the union. Um, but, but, but in other countries, and most, most noticeably, or most notably Germany, for example, they have things called works councils, and, and we're seeing this trend in the US we had worker centers and now we're seeing a lot of these independent unions at, at some of these companies like we talked about in our last show. And and even even more so, we're seeing just, um, I don't know how to explain it. Uh, we're seeing groups of employees at a company who are not trying to unionize, but they're stepping up to advocate about their employment relationship without, the, and they don't wanna be in a union, but they wanna have a voice. And so this this notion of 2, um, you know, like and a reasonable employer, and i don't I don't you know, I mean, a reasonable employer might actually entertain a conversation with their associates about working conditions, but it could violate the law. So
0: yeah, a, a reasonable employer is going to want to listen to their employees because they're they're going to want to keep those concerns in-house rather than forcing the employees outside of the company to talk to a a, for example, a labor organizer who then can then come in and voice those concerns on their behalf. so it, it's absolutely in the employer's best interest if the employees want to, get together and like small o organize within the workplace to then present uh uh through committee or otherwise to the employer a list of concerns to say you know this is these are the pressure points this is where we think we can do better as an organization um it an employer should listen because the employees are telling you um, what is going to, what's going to make them happy. What's going to, what, what's going to improve their workplace. And if right. you're not, if you're not going to listen a union might, and that's, that's what you're trying to avoid.
1: Yeah. And, but, but depending on how it's done, it, there's a lot of gray area there. right? A- absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, yeah. You can't, you, you can listen, but you can't, you can't basically like you can listen, but you can't, <laughs> you can't promise to do it. You can't do anything about it. So uh, and I'm and I am I am over I'm over simplifying. Um, but if you are, if if your goal as the employer is to, kind of have these committees be kind of a de facto arm of management to help management make decisions, then they're going to be illegal. If they're if you're just listening and then then it's then they're they're maybe legal with a ton of gray area
1: yeah so i'm going to ask you a, am going to ask you a, a you know a, a typical client question right i have a safety committee at my plant um is that illegal
0: um probably probably not but again it's going to depend on how it's set up and then what kind of what the management what the management participation looks like
1: so so, so it, with the safety, and, and by the way, I don't have a safety committee at my plant because I don't have a plant, so I don't have a safety committee. It was hypothetical, but just just for disclosure. Um, I, so, but I've worked in facilities where we had safety committees in non-union facilities and you know you would quite often walk the floor with you know managers right the safety manager the hr manager or shift shift supervisors we quite often walk the floor with representatives from the company volunteers from the safety committee and you would mutually review and audit the departments that you were walking through looking for you know not violations per se but looking to make sure that things were being followed lockout tag out all that kind of stuff that's pretty common in a yeah. lot of business today and i don't think anybody's looking to like you know file ulps over safety committee but but there is a line when you start getting into things in a non-union environment there's a line when you start talking about things like benefits or work rules and stuff. so can you can you maybe give us like where the breakpoints are where you might be okay and where you might not be um
0: if, i know if, it's not black and white yeah it, it's not it's it's not it's it's not black and white. I mean, the the question the question really becomes like how much how much um, how much say do the employees have? Are the are they, for example, just making proposals or are they actually sitting down with management, helping to formulate policies? Um, are they, if they're proposals, if they're action proposals that management can act on, or is it, or is it informational, um, in, informational, uh, inform, informational information? Um, so it does, does what, so I guess if you're saying kind of wh- where's the, where's the line, I guess, is the, is the employee committee or employee or employee body? Is it merely providing information for management for its for its benefit that it can or cannot act on, or is it making proposals, kind of independent of or in conjunction which manage, with management, in which there's an expectation of change occurring?
1: Yeah, that so that, the, best way that's, y- kind of yeah. the difference. yeah so that yeah so if if the group if the group of, of of hourly employees comes forward with a suggestion about we think we should be scheduled in this way according to this system and management says well we can't do that but we could alter it you know then you you've kind of engaged in a sort of quasi bargaining right. and and that's probably going to get you in trouble if you if you go to your a group of employees and say. Here are three options that we've crafted of shift schedules, and we'd like your impression. I mean, that could go sideways depending on the circumstances, but that's more likely to be just because you're soliciting feedback. Correct. Correct.
0: And- or, or if the employees come to you and say, um, um, "You know, we don't, we don't like the way." Just you know, we don't like the way schedules are done. We've done some research on how some other companies. Here's some potential options for you to consider, or something like that. You know, thank you. Know, thanks for thanks for listening. And then management kind of takes the information, either does something with it or doesn't. That to me seems more informational as opposed to the collaborative expectation of doing something as a result of the
1: employees raising these concerns. So, so we're, what what we were what were the conversation that we had led was would it be would it make sense to since this 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 these kind of dialogues have a direct impact on both sides if you will whether there's a union in place or not would it be a good policy reform of for labor policy in the US to consider relaxing that standard in some way and we, and, and i think at the beginning of this you said yeah having having that direct discussion is is the right thing to do but but it, 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 would you say, in your opinion, that maybe trying to loosen it up a little bit could add some additional advantages, or is it would it open up some other doors I haven't thought about?
0: No, I, I to me it seems advantageous for both sides. Uh, the only the only group that may oppose it is the labor unions because mm. it's, it runs against their interests, right? If you can deal if you can deal directly with management on some issues, um, maybe not issues like wages and uh, but if you can deal with management on some issues that, that are, uh, kind of key to the workplace, um, the need for the labor union to do that on the employee's behalf shrinks, right? So yeah. the, the group that's going to oppose it, I, I think if you're talking about some common sense 8a2 reforms, the group that's going to oppose it is going to be, is going to be big labor. And if I'm, if I'm advocating on behalf of management, if I'm, um, you know, SHRM or some other uh, uh, management um, trade organization, uh, employer trade organization, I'm saying, I think this is a great
1: idea. Mm-hmm. Um, although, and, and I go back to what I said at the beginning, like in, in Germany with the works councils, I mean, there is negotiations that happens between the union and the company, but then there's also this guidance role that is created with a works council where they do solicit input on this kind of stuff as a regular on a regular basis as a part of but it's not done under the auspices of the collective bargaining agreement it's more like the works councils exist to provide guidance during the terms of the contract related to certain issues or business development um and I don't know I don't know if that would work in the US cuz you know we tend to hate anything that looks european anyway <laughs> not I mean not in general but of policy stuff right that we you know don't make don't make the US Europe is
0: I was going to say beer pizza yeah we like croissants that, food, food
1: food fashion movies but you know policies that we tend to reject out out of hand just <laughs> it's european we don't like it um I'm generalizing in a big way at the end of the show here today um I, I'm not saying that would work, but I, I do think it's an interesting concept, right? And it's just one, you know, because I think what we're seeing is some sort of evolution, right, with the employees, with the with the with labor to a certain extent. We're seeing changes in the way they're doing some things, um, but it, it, you know, it's not it's not going to it's not going to happen fast, and it's not going to happen easily. But it's just interesting to kind of contemplate how you know instead of trying to pass the pro act or whatever which would radically change everything could we change a few bits and pieces and maybe make our system slightly more effective for everybody it
0: depends what goal you're trying to achieve if your goal is to make it easier for unions to organize and to help bolster uh, labor unions as businesses, um, then the pro act makes a lot of sense. If your goal is to make workplaces better for employees, um, then uh, something like loosening the 882 standard to give employees maybe a little more say or the opportunity to have a little more say in what goes on in the workplace without, um, you know, without violating 882, makes a lot of sense.
1: Yeah. That's what I thought, too. Um, It'll never happen, or at least it won't happen anytime soon. But I thought it was an interesting discussion. Um, I think that we're almost through an hour that we booked. So I I didn't mean to run the show quite that long, but uh, fascinating discussion today, at least for me and you. Um, I wanted to mention uh, my other co-host, Robin Schooling, on our regular episodes of Drive Through HR Um, released the first episode of a new at least 10 part series that she's running that ties into the world of recruiting and recruiting technology. Her guest is Aaron Backman, and that episode was posted. I don't know a couple of days ago. So, if you're interested in in hearing anything uh, outside of the labor relations world, and you're into recruiting, Robin started a new show. We've we've kind of split up for a while. Like I split up the band, and we're going off and working with other artists to, to spur our creativity. I guess. Uh, but anyway, this was episode number two of Labor. That make yeah, you know, you're the muse. Yeah, you're the you're the inspiration, so something like that. I don't know. Anyway, this is a, episode number two of Labor Relatedly, and this is Michael Vandervoort and my my co-host John Hyman. And thanks for listening. And John, I hope you have a great rest of the week.
0: Yeah, you too. We'll do this again soon.
1: Yeah, we'll catch up. There's plenty to talk about every couple of weeks. So have a good day. Talk to you soon. Take care.